trust, mercy, death. Those last few words, I'd like to use that as a template to go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Father, we pray that every heart this morning will be enabled through a sight of Jesus Christ, through your word, and by the Spirit's help to trust you so that we are enraptured by your mercy. That we know that you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. We pray, our Father, that then we'll know that it is not death to die. Enable us to have trust. Give us a glimpse of your mercy that we might confess it is not death to die and that life is ours in your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. When we answer the why, the what follows naturally. Why do we exist as a church? Why are you here this morning? What is this whole thing of gathering and coming together Lord's Day after Lord's Day at the same time for a similar order of worship liturgy with the same basic elements of worship. Why do we have this? What's the purpose? Every year or every other year, we seek to take a few Sundays and answer these questions. Sometimes it's three or four weeks. Sometimes it's been eight or nine, one I think it might have been a few years ago we did a series on the marks of a healthy church, which we pray we not only preach about it, but that it reflects our church. And when we can affirm biblically why we gather, then the what and the how, the particulars of our gathering are answered more easily. I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, and My mind took me back to four years ago. Cheryl and I had been back four months. Let me see, yeah, almost four months from living and serving in Beijing, China for six years. And we'd gotten some reentry counseling down in Colombia. And a day or two later, we were headed to up to for take a couple of weeks off. The church granted me a sabbatical. Some of you remember that, the end of October 2019 through the end of the year. And I remember in our time together, all these emotions, the the counseling over two days from just sadness to exhaustion to anger to fear. Can you imagine you come back And we'd been back a few months, and it all was just too fast, and I don't think we were ready. And that, so that was hard enough, but we got in a car then to drive north to start a couple of weeks to see friends. And our first stop was Dayton, Ohio. 
And we drove 10 hours into this blinding rain. And I remember just feeling these hot tears and frustration about we've just been through this counseling and now we're driving through 10 hours of blinding rain, like straight from the north. You couldn't see anything. The windshield wipers are going like this. And we're debriefing our counseling time. And the only thing, the only thing that kept us headed north to Dayton, Ohio in that rain. Because a few times I threatened, like, babe, we got to turn around. I can't do this. Was the why. Was the why. We knew that the fel- some time off in the fellowship of friends would be an elixir and a bomb to our soul. So the why, you see, has to be answered. And when you have that, the what and how, whether you go on a mule or in a car, whether you go through perfect weather, whether you do it all in one trip or take three days to get to Dayton, Ohio, it doesn't matter. And so this morning, as we speak of our essentials over the next few weeks, probably four to six weeks, our subject is the gospel. In the gospel, this is it, kids, this is the point of the message. The gospel is God's power to save. The gospel is God's power to save. Now, you might think by gospel, and when you open your Bible, surely you see, like me, so I turn there, page... 807 in my ESV, the gospel according to Matthew. And we may mean by gospel the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we use gospel there with a capital G, and these are the inspired narratives of the birth, life, ministry, teaching, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus. Indeed, they contain the gospel, the good news. In fact, in Mark, if you turn to Mark 1, and you'll turn around. I would encourage you to maybe have a physical copy of the Bible this morning. We're going to bounce around just a little bit. But in Mark 1.1, we read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there, the Son of God. The idea is, right, good news. And that word for gospel is a compound noun with a prefix that means good message. That's it. It's why you have a verb form of that in Luke 2.10 when the angel says, as you remember, to the shepherds, I bring you, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That is simply the word for gospel in verbal form. That's what that is. I bring you great news. To bring great news is to gospel. But when we speak of gospel with a little g, we mean the good news of God rescuing a people for himself through the vicarious death and resurrection of his son and the cross of his son. I think it's very valid when John Piper says God is the gospel, and we could fill that out. We could take, if if you had a big gospel stone, 
you could cut facets in it to show us all the good news of the gospel, that it's God. When you get the gospel, you get God. And you get God in grace through the cross of his son and through his son raised to life from the grave for you and for me to bring us back to God, we who were afar off. You get the gospel, and there's many facets to it. And over the next two weeks, this morning and next Lord's Day night, we'll look at 10 dimensions to the gospel six this morning and four next week. So this morning, I want to give you six briefly. And we'll fill these out with four more next week. There are more. There are more. And when I preached, I want you to know I did not look back at the messages intentionally that I preached on the gospel as a core essence or essential for why we gather. This is fresh. I'm not borrowing from a previous sermon. First, I want us to see that the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. I'm going to give you the outline if you're taking notes. Number two, the gospel is centered upon the person and work of Jesus. So first, it is a Trinitarian gospel. Secondly, it is a gospel centered upon the person and work of Jesus. Thirdly, it is a preached gospel. It is a preached gospel. Fourthly, it is a foretold gospel. By that we mean God. Foretold by word a gospel and revealed it to us in little bits and pieces in the in his unfolding revelation of the scriptures for us. That's a foretold gospel. Fifth, it's a gospel which has power to save. Obviously, we've seen that in Romans 1. And then finally, it's a gospel committed to writing. It's a gospel that has been committed to writing. You might see that works with, is paired with a preached gospel and a gospel committed to writing. Just like a Trinitarian gospel then has this focus centered upon the person and work of Jesus. Well, first, the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. If Paul was ever writing in an angry spirit, it had to be the book of Galatians. But in the context of him proving that the gospel is worth defending, which will be the first point next Sunday night, he makes a point about the gospel in Galatians 1.1 
when he says, and he helps us think that the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel, when he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, in effect, is giving his credentials. He's saying, this is not about me. My authority is that of another. It's not even my gospel, it's not from me, and I don't speak on my own behalf. He says, I'm an apostle, not from men, not through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then look at verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That makes sense because in another place, he reckoned, he accounted himself as the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church of God. And he doesn't say, I invented the gospel. No, it's God's gospel, first of all, not man's. And I'm an apostle, not because of my own planning, not because of my own self-appointment, but I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And as we'll see next Sunday evening, that's why Paul may take a very firm posture in defending the gospel against what is no gospel at all. So it's not man's gospel, but it's God's. And when we say it's God's gospel, we mean it is a Trinitarian gospel, a message from the whole Trinity, from all the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where each member of the Trinity helps deliver, in effect, the good news and makes the good out of what we call the good news. We were discussing this Wednesday night in prayer meeting, kind of a little look ahead at this sermon. And we talked about there's really no good news, is there, unless we can apprehend what the bad news is. So what is the bad news? When you're born, you're really a son of the first Adam. You have, you, whether you're a boy or a girl, you're, you don't need to be taught to be mean. You don't need to be taught to lie. You don't need to be taught to be sinfully irritated. It's like a snake does not take hissing lessons, all right? And rabbits don't take instruction in jumping. It's in their nature like dogs bark and cats Meow. And so the bad news is that apart from Jesus Christ, and this is not our original humanity, but our fallen humanity, we're dead. We're dead. We're rebels. It's not simply that we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. We don't want the one who made us, and the one who sustains us in every moment, keeping this heart beating and these lungs expanding and this brain sending impulses to lift up your right hand and put down your left, it's against him, the one who's so gracious to us, who would woo us by, our, by his kindness, that we resist 
and we've rebelled like our first parents. That's the bad news. We're condemned. You're born with a death sentence apart from Jesus Christ. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God saves. And the God who saves is the Trinity, is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's no surprise that the apostle crafts a Trinitarian benediction like that at the end of 2 Corinthians. And from that benediction, that good word, we know the character of the good news of the gospel that it's Trinitarian. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. Secondly, the gospel is centered upon the person and work of Jesus. Turn back again with me to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to land at verse 3. But when you think of Christianity and the gospel, we must see and affirm that the gospel centers upon the person and work of Jesus. It's in those opening lines of Romans 1 that Paul writes in the first phrase of Romans, of verse 3, that the gospel of God is concerning his son. And we don't want to overlook the import of those three words. Any attempt to make the main concern of the gospel anything other than God's son is not the gospel of the Bible. If you fill it in and you say that the main subject of the gospel is fill it in, anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, or Jesus plus anything, you've perverted the gospel. And to you I say anathema. And to that one, let him be accursed. And it's why Paul endeavored to preach Christ and him crucified. That is the apostolic pattern. And it must be ours as well until he returns. It is not our prerogative or right to change, to alter, or to manipulate the message of the divinely commissioned gospel of the king of the church of King Jesus. Turn again with me, or for the first time, to 1 Corinthians We'll be back here a little bit, at least again, I know. Look what Paul says in verses 1 through 5. There's much to demonstrate here about the gospel. He says, but when I came to you, brothers, he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And by know nothing among you, then he means preach nothing to you except Jesus Christ 
and in him crucified. Look at Paul. He says, I was with, with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I think the reason why he uses three words to, to characterize how he was with them is for fear that he would drain the cross of its power by substituting his own eloquence, or eloquence, the own, his own method of delivery for the power of the message of Christ and him crucified. And so he says, I was with you there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, and you then be one of the, I'm of, Apostle, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, but rather their faith might rest in the wisdom of not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, which he said is the gospel. The gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. The gospel is a gospel centered upon the person and work of Jesus. That's why I'm so excited. Brian's going to preach tonight for us from John 14, 1 through 6, where Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way in the truth, in the life. Not a way and a truth and a life, but singularly, exclusively for you, the way, the truth, and the life. And to preach the gospel, to have a gospel centered upon the person and work of Jesus is to take him all in the anticipation of the Messiah, this one who would come and get what was disordered back in order, to make what was wronged right. It's to know and to meditate and to love and to embrace his incarnation, the mystery of God taking on human flesh, to know of his teaching. And in fact, at the very end of Matthew 28, what else could it be but the gospel that is the instrument for making disciples of all the nations and then taking the teaching of Jesus and making sure that disciples soak in that, imbibe that, embrace that, and practice all that Jesus taught the disciples. But it's the Son even as we see in 1 Corinthians, we speak of a gospel that's centered upon the Son. Look, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. You might think that Paul tends to fo focus kind of from the cross and on but Philippians 2 tells you that Paul was very conscious of the incarnation and the nature of our Lord Jesus as the great God-man. But in 1 Corinthians 15, when he summarizes the gospel, he says that he preached, 
He was preaching to them in which they re- that they received, in which they stand, by which you are being saved. Verse 2, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, here it is. I delivered to you as of first importance, not first in time, not meaning first to the Corinthians, but first in order of priority. Two things, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, but that he did not remain there. In fact, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And it's no doubt that he understood that with Peter by that sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 to be a direct fulfillment of Psalm 16, that that holy one, the Lord Jesus, would not ultimately undergo decay. But by his life and death and resurrection, he would be raised for our life, our hope, and our future. We have a Trinitarian gospel. We have a gospel that's centered upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus. But thirdly, we have a preached gospel. Paul was very plain in his first letter to the Corinthians. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, you just turn back with me to chapter 1, verse 17. I could see Paul in a prayer meeting. Hey, what are you thankful for? Well, I didn't baptize anyone this week. What are you, uh, okay, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful that I was able to preach Christ and him crucified. He actually, in effect, had a degree of gladness that he, only, he could only remember a few that he baptized there in the church of Corinth. Because he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Some of you understand this. If you, you might imagine if you are a salesperson and you have someone persuaded to buy or believe what it is you're selling or trying to convince them of. And at some point, you talk too much and too long and get into unnecessary details and they change their mind. And Paul's saying here, the preaching of Christ must be in demonstration of the spirit and of power, but must not be so slick, so fancy, or propped up with $10 words when $1 words would do that pop. The cross is drained, he says, emptied of its power. And we know this then that the gospel from Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul connects the gospel to power, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so the gospel summed up in this word, the cross, symbolic of the whole, the totality of the message of the gospel, has power, real power. And the preaching then of the gospel must display that power. And kids, let me say this. I know some days you may feel like, why aren't you at church, mom and dad? I don't have a choice. 
That's what we do on Sundays. But when you're here, you're hearing the only message, the only good news that will deliver you from your death sentence. That's it. There is no plan B for you. There is no plan B for me. It's Jesus. It's the cross. It's the gospel. Or we're doomed. It's the message of the gospel and not the method of the preacher or the eloquence of the preacher that is effective for salvation. And it's not to say that when we preach, that we're not seeking to preach in a way that's compelling. As we, talk, we always talk about the ethos of the preacher, the logos of the message, the pathos of the preacher. All these things of preaching. But we pray that they never drain the cross of its power, the cross of Christ of its power, because we're too interested in being slick or catchy or relevant. But still, right, God intended that the gospel is a preached gospel. So I actually like the bracelets, the, these like band things that have the arrow down. Some of you know this for his incarnation, a cross for his sufferings, a tomb for his, a stone for his tomb, and an arrow up for his resurrection and ascension. But the best designed bracelet is no substitute for the faithful, powerful, spirit-dependent preaching of the gospel of God. None whatsoever. We must never lose our way here. We must understand that the church is commissioned until the, the Lord Jesus comes that no matter at times, though it's the same themes, the gospel, a message about God and man and the cross that then calls for this response, these two gospel responses of faith and of repentance, that we're like, I hear this all the time. That's good. You eat all the time. You sleep every day. You breathe all the time. Just because you do something daily or know something, or it's common to you, does not lessen its importance. Try to go tomorrow with no oxygen, no sleep, no water, no food, no light, and tell me how that works out for you on Tuesday. We need this gospel. But fourthly, it's a foretold gospel. With the curse to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see that the gospel is a foretold gospel. God is giving us little nuggets, some little and not so little prepayments and first looks at the gospel of his son. It's the unfolding revelation of the covenant of redemption in his plan of salvation. And so that's why we sing, and I'm so glad we sang this morning, come behold the wondrous mystery, you see. See, it's, Paul David Tripp says, and this is true of the gospel and application, part of preaching the gospel to ourselves is that we pray we don't lose 
our awe of the wonder of it. That God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pray. Dads, pray with your wives. Moms, pray with your children that there'd be a wonder and that you might not lose the wonder, but that you might still be daily intoxicated by the fragrance of the gospel. I need that. Guys, I need you to pray that for me. And I know if I need you to pray that for me, what? The east side of Grace Baptist Church needs the west side of Grace Baptist Church to pray for them. And yeah. And you guys, guess what? You need this side to pray for you. See, God is foretelling us. He's making these predictive payments on the whole of his redemption plan. Even in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul quotes Genesis 12, 3 to say that God was foretelling his good news. Let me read this. Know that then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. As I said earlier, John Piper's quote, that God is the gospel. And here, God is preaching the gospel through his promise to Abraham, our father in the faith. We have in the gospel a foretold gospel. Fifth, we have a gospel which has power to save. I already read this to you from 1 Corinthians, I think 2 or verse 24. Maybe I didn't. I will in a moment. Paul says, beginning of verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, right? Think about this. Some looking for power, some looking for logic, signs, wisdom. But Paul says, we as the apostles preach Christ crucified. And we admit this as a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So please don't miss this point, for it's directly related to the title of my sermon, The gospel is God's power to save. Kids, that's the the main point this morning. Moms and dads, don't waste this message. At lunch today, ask, what was the main point of Pastor Mark's message? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Look, even after a storm, what do we do? We text one another when we lose power. How are you doing? No power. God says, in the gospel of his son, we have power. That's why Paul was set apart for the gospel. Turn a final time to Romans 1. In those first 17 verses, four times we find the word gospel, good news. And out of those four occurrences are are four takeaways. In effect... 
First, in verse 1, is the reason Paul was set apart, or you might say sanctified, given, saved on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, and set apart for the apostolic ministry. That was for the purpose of the gospel of God. Secondly, it's the reason in verse 9 he says, I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He says, I can call God to witness that it's for the gospel that I give all that I am, pouring out my life as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and for the faith of others. It's for the gospel of his son. And then there, for a fourth thing, he says, it was the reason, verse 15, not simply to go to Rome, but what he wanted to do when he got to Rome. It's very interesting. He didn't say, hey, let's set aside four days so you can show me the sights around Rome. He says, the reason I want to come to Rome is to preach the gospel to you. And by the way, these were already Christians, And so the application is that we who are in Christ need the gospel as much as the first time we heard it. We need it today as much as we did the first time we heard it. And then finally he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I was set apart for the gospel. I serve God because of the gospel. I serve him with my spirit. This is thirdly why I'm eager to go and preach to you in Rome And then fourth, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation broadly to the whole world, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Even for Luther of that tandem, Luther and Calvin, that lit the Reformation, that German monk Luther's heart was gripped as he was caught up in that whole, the whole thing of penance and indulgences to say, wait a minute. The righteousness of God has nothing to do with these paid indulgences, but it has everything to do, it's the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God from faith, for faith, or from faith to faith. And so the righteous wouldn't be living by indulgences on this crazy presumption by the payment of money that forgiveness could be obtained, but rather through faith in God who's made these promises concerning his son. So Charles Hodge says of verse 16 here in Romans 1, I want you to hear this, what he says. He says, the main idea here of verses 16 and 17 is that the gospel is that in which God works. You want to see God work? Share the gospel. You want to see God work? Believe the gospel. You want to see God work? Pray for the preaching of the gospel. And Hodge says, which he renders efficacious. It is the gospel that God makes effective. It works. 
right? It's just a $10 word for the word effective. The gospel is efficacious to save. And he goes on to add this. The nature of the salvation here intended is to be learned from the nature of the gospel. The nature, he says, it is deliverance. Here it is. Here's that salvation. So the nature of the gospel is to be learned, or the the nature of salvation is to be learned, he says, from the nature of the gospel. It is deliverance from sin and its punishment and admission into eternal life and blessedness. This is what no means of man's devising, no efforts of human wisdom or human power could effect for any human being. How can we forget Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18? Here it is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. As an application question, I want to ask, are you daily returning time and again to the gospel? This is what we've been learning in the class, The Discipline of Grace based on the book by Jerry Bridges. Like, you don't just start the Christian life via the gospel, and then it's in your rearview mirror, never to be embraced, believed, trusted, talked about again. But it, it's, the daily, it's, the, it's the daily, if you will, kind of, it, it's, it's, it's the freight of the Christian life. The gospel that I'm a lot worse, as Dr. Jack Miller says, than I know. Praise God, he says. You're way worse than you know. That's why you can praise God. God's grace is all that more amazing because you and I only know the tip of the iceberg about how bad we really are. And then look in verses 21 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, in... Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There is a foolishness to preaching when you think that simply a message by a human preacher is God's instrument for salvation. But it's true, it's real, and that's why we won't abandon preaching. So Paul says it is Christ who is the power of God at the end of verse 24 in the wisdom of God. Finally, the gospel is a gospel committed. It's committed to writing. Not only was the gospel foretold, but and not only was the gospel preached and passed on orally, but we have something more certain. We have the gospel committed to writing. We have the written word, the gospel preserved for us. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he's providing instruction for us really about the origin of Scripture, that it's God-breathed. That's the main point, not so much the mechanics of it, but also the reality that we have the Scriptures in written, tangible forms. We speak of the autograph of Scripture. The word for Scripture there, or writing, is simply graphe, right? 
Kids, when you say, if we ask for your autograph, it's what you've written. And praise God, we have the gospel committed to writing. He's committed his word to us through the written scriptures. Even Peter says this in 2 Peter 1 and verses 19 through 21. We have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Praise God we have this gospel that God has committed to writing. So I want you to think just for a moment about this. Six things about the gospel this morning. First, to review, we have a what? A Trinitarian gospel. Secondly, we have a gospel that centers upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we have a preached gospel. What we might see from 1 Corinthians 1 is something that Paul puts into the category of what the world would call foolishness. Fourth, we have a foretold gospel. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this unfolding revelation of God, the unfolding mystery of what God is doing to save a people for himself, for his own glory. And then fifth, we have a gospel that has power to save power to save. And then finally, we have a gospel that's committed to writing. In conclusion, I want to ask you this morning, what will we do with the gospel as a church? Will we steward the life-giving message of the cross as that one message that must be preserved, must be preached, must be believed and must be obeyed and responded to with faith and repentance? Will we steward it well? If you ask me, one of my frustrations at this point in my life is having a multi-page Excel spreadsheet with all the passwords for all the accounts and all the things in our life. Does anyone deal with that frustration too? Does anyone relate to that? Okay. And then you recognize, I do have a password for it, but I just don't know what where to find it. <laughs> Wouldn't you like just one password for everything in life that you know that was protected? Wouldn't that be sweet? Like, I don't know, 50, 20? You name yours, okay. We have one gospel. And it's life. It's power to save. It's the one message that must be preserved. It must be preached it must be believed. It must be obeyed and responded to with these two twin gospel graces of faith and repentance. Guys, blow the chaff away. When we speak of the essentials of Grace Baptist Church and why we exist, why we gather, what we're about, we must never lose this. Pray that for us when we preach. Pray that for your elders encourage that, work that through, knead that into your conversations with one another, into your time together as husbands and wives, friends in the gospel. 
Don't graduate upon that. Don't let lesser things get in the way of the message of Christ and in him and him crucified. In it is life. It points to the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. To him, let's look. To him, for him. Let's believe. Let's advance. Let's preach. Let's preserve purely his gospel, that faith that Jude says was once delivered to the saints. Amen.